Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're trying to get a read on the current state of the wine collector. It's uh, kind of mid February 2023, and a lot has happened in the last year with rising interest rates and a volatile financial market. and supply chain issues, war in Russia and Ukraine, and all sorts of things happening. So lots of things happening, but we still, most of the data points to fine and luxury wine markets still doing pretty well. So we wanted to get some insight on the ground from wine collectors around the U.S. to see what they're seeing. So we're back today with Charlie Fu, one of our original interviews around wine influencers and his role in the Wine Berserkers community in episode 11. And co-host of our end of year 2020 episode when I was out because my uh, I was having a baby <laughs> so I was at the hospital. So Charlie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Peter. So Charlie's an LA-based wine collector, lawyer, caviar slinger, and also goes by Clayfu Wine on Instagram. Should I have added anything else? That's about it. Since we last talked, my daughter's like in first grade now. So and then your kid is probably crawling or maybe even walking now. She's too, yeah, walking all around and everything. Talking up a storm, it's uh, once she's comfortable, it's hard to get her to stop talking. Oh yeah, wait until they're six. That's when it gets really rough. <laughs> so for context for our listeners, how big is your wine collection these days? It's good size. I'd say it's a few thousand if I was going to do an estimate. You don't even know that's how big it is. That's uh... <laughs> I know. I know how much. It's all on Seller Tracker, but you know, you got some snitches that I might report back to my wife. You know? <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. I only have five bottles. I have five bottles of wine. They're nine ninety nine each. Right, right, right. And you're based in LA, the broader LA area. How big is the group of folks that you're enjoying wine with? It's actually a decent amount of different groups. Every gathering is like five to six people try to keep it smaller and then everyone just kind of availability wise just switches in and out different locations or different people as we've gone through all this remote stuff like people are less likely to drive as far nowadays so like just for myself like i don't want to take like an hour and a half uber each way and then, so that's kind of changed the group dynamics in different areas too. But as long as everyone's willing to meet in downtown LA, we've had some pretty consistent good dinners and with different groups and everyone's drinking good. So if each of the groups is five to six people, like how many different people are you interacting with? I'd say anywhere from like 20 to 25 generally, maybe a little less than that. I mean, there's always like kind of a core one or two that are always around. Everyone else filters in and out. It's kind of like, you know, you look at what wine we're going to drink and then kind of say, hey, I know these guys have this particular wine and, you know, let's hit them up and say, hey, you want to meet up at this restaurant? We're going to do this, 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 and let's come hang. Got it. And has the demographic of this group changed over time? I think people go in and out. It's just generally people go in and out. I mean, there's been some younger blood that's come in that's gotten into Burgundy, Rhone, Champagne, stuff like that in the last two years since we last spoke. So we're definitely seeing that. Every group's different. I know there are groups that just never change. Always, they've been drinking with the same people for like a decade. I think it's fun to like meet new people that are learning 
about this stuff too. So there's like a fresh perspective. So is it younger? Is it all male? Is there some, we've been hearing that there's an increasing number of women collecting wine. Oh yeah. I mean, there's definitely women collectors. I think this group is predominantly younger male. I would say we skew probably early thirties to mid forties, occasionally maybe go over 50, like one or two people, but typically it's in that kind of demographic. Things like dry January and even abstinence have become a thing. Has that impacted your group at all? As a wine person, I'm sort of like, should I be anti-dry January or things like that? I'm not sure. If they have dry January, then they just tell us that, you know, they're not drinking in January and they would move along and then the next person comes in. I know at least one guy I just had dinner with this week, he said he was having dry January in January, but we just never actually synced up for any dinner. So it never impacted anything. But it's becoming more common. You're seeing it uh, with more people, even in this core wine collector group. Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of people doing dry January. There's people doing like dry February. I don't know. Sometimes I think there's definitely more knowledge about taking a, a little break from drinking too much wine, eating too much rich food. Uh, is definitely probably good for our health to do a little reset. Although I've heard a lot of studies say that it's supposed to be moderation, not necessarily abstinence. That is what's better for your body. That's what my doctor told me once. He was like, there's a checkbox for if you drink or not. It's like seldomly, moderately, excessively, or none. And I told him, I was like, I don't know how to answer this question because I like get together with my friends like once a week to drink, but we bring like one or two bottles a person. But then every other day I don't drink. So how do I mark it? And then so he explained the whole thing about how, well, you know, your body is like a bowl and then you keep adding alcohol until it overflows. So just because you take a couple of days off doesn't necessarily mean that your bowl lessens because you've had it so filled up from that one day. Yeah, maybe you're right. Well, and your liver needs to get used to processing. And when it stops processing the alcohol, then it's like used to not processing it. And then you're just like swarming it all of a sudden. So it's like you're kind of impacting it. Hopefully stacks of wine aren't piling up in storage facilities or in your cellars at home then with all the dry Januaries. Oh, no impact for me. <laughs> <laughs> Are there certain wineries or wine regions that have been more in demand from your group than others right now? I don't think so. I think there's been the general core stuff is always the same. You know, you're always drinking Burgundy, Rhone, Champagne. You might be looking through like smaller producers within those regions that are doing like the way they grow wine. Excuse me, grow grapes is different. The way they make wine might be a little different. You might branch out and try new producers within, but typically the breadth of wine is pretty similar. Well, that's not even that typical. Burgundy, Rhone, Champagne, that's been pretty hot in the last five to 10 years. But I mean, historically, Collecting was all about Bordeaux, right? And in America, Napa Cabernet as well. Do those play any role these days? If you ask someone else that may be collecting those, then absolutely it would. I don't want to speak for our whole group, but I would say our general discussions, it doesn't play a role. Actually, just at dinner the other day, we were just talking about Bordeaux, and they were making a joke that we should do a Bordeaux dinner, and then Charlie would not want to come. But I was like, I'll drink a bottle of Bordeaux. We can do it. Your palate needs a reset every now and then. It can't always be the same thing over and over again. Bordeaux, but not Napa. We've been queuing up this old Napa dinner for some time now. And I love drinking old Napa wine. And I was just talking about it recently that I've had some weird craving for like young, big Napa cab lately. I don't know what it is, but I had like a 09 Maybach Cabernet not that long ago. And I was like, this is 
in a really good spot right now. Maybe I should try some more kind of cultish Napa cabs and just kind of get those vibes going. For a lot of people, 09's old. <laughs> Even they're probably selling the 21's now already, right? Yeah, I just had a 1819 Memento Mori and I was really surprised. It was very impressive, those wines. So where do people in your group hear about new wineries from? I think it's all over the place. There's the internet, obviously. There's Instagram. There's people on Instagram posting about new stuff. Wine berserkers. Just general chit-chat, I think. You get locked in with so many people that are in the industry, that are on the ground in France or whatever region. They say, hey, there's this cool new producer you should try. Maybe it's you strike gold, maybe you don't. It just really depends. That's how you learn. What gets someone in your group to actually try? Because there's a lot of data coming in, right? A lot of people saying you should try this, try that, or whatever. What actually gets you to actually buy the wine? I think if it's someone that I know personally that really enjoys it, I'll go try it. If it's like a retailer, I typically have a guarded response to them, giving like, oh, check out the son of this winemaker He's making wines or this Japanese winemaker is making natural wine or whatever. I tend to be very guarded in those type of recommendations. But when it's someone that I trust, I'm more than happy to try something. If they are retailers, there's plenty of retailers I trust that if they give me a recommendation, I'm all in. So it just kind of depends. It's hard to say. I felt like I kind of denigrated some retailers at that point, but that's not my intention. There are definitely retailers that tell me to buy something and I'll buy whatever they say. So outside of retailers, who are most of these people that you trust? Are they like people in the wine industry? Or they're just part of your wine collecting group? I'd say like people in the wine collecting group, people outside of the wine collecting group, like just on Instagram, you connect with so many people that you read their notes, you see their intention is good. They crave knowledge. And those type of people are really interesting to me and make me want to learn more for sure. When they suggest something, I'll look for it. So a big topic for both the industry and collectors is pricing, the price of wine. Burgundy, core to your group, and other Psalm favorites like Rhone and Champagne have skyrocketed in price over the past decade or two. And if you're sitting on a bunch, then that's great for <laughs> the value of your collection. Although buying new ones might be more problematic. But there have been some data from LiveX that's showing that maybe the price is starting to slow. What have you seen in terms of the price changes and how have they impacted buying from your group's perspective? Yeah, so you definitely see that the secondary market is dropping in price, especially at the top end. So like LiveX is tracking a lot of more top end wine and you definitely seeing a drop in price. But retail level, like the regular non-markup release pricing just keeps going up because the whole idea is that let's say a bottle of wine is $100 this year and then, but you can sell it for $400 even if it drops down at $300, people are still going to buy it for $100, right? Because there's still that discrepancy of $200. So then the next year, they could release it. Whoever, importer, retailer, winery, distributor, whatever that jacks up the price, they can jack it up to $150 to $200. And it still hasn't reached that $300. Right? There's still that delta there that still makes sense to buy it. So I would say that pricing has gone up from what I'm buying, but the secondary pricing is lower, if that makes sense. There used to be a huge spread between that retail price that you could acquire it at and the secondary price. And now that's starting to narrow. Exactly. I mean, you see the same with like luxury watches and cars and stuff right now. Like people were holding all kinds of Rolexes and then they've completely dropped in price, but they're still going to snatch it up if their store seller gives it to them at the general MSRP because they can still make a profit off of it. It's still like, oh, it's a good deal. Like I don't generally sell 
the top stuff that I get, but I still think, oh yeah, this is a good deal relative to the market, so I'm still going to buy it. It's something in your head that makes you crazy about getting a good deal. You kind of persuade yourself that it's still a value to spend on. Even if you're not planning on monetizing it. It's a value statement, right? Like everyone in the world values this at 300 still. So 150 is still a good deal. Yeah, I mean, you can't take the Chinese out of it. It's still be on a discount or cheaper than it should be. I'm definitely still going to buy it. Yeah. So with Burgundy, both red and white being so hot these days, has there been increased interest in other regions that produce Pinot and Chard, whether that's California, Willamette Valley, New Zealand, other places? I think so, yeah. Everyone's always looking for an alternative, especially a something lighter on the wallet. And Willamette Valley is definitely one of the targets for people when it comes to Pinot and Chard. I think like the biggest compliment like people give to these producers, in a way they're trying to compliment, is like, this is Burgundia. This is as close to Burgundy as it gets. Maybe the producer doesn't love hearing that because it sounds like you're not speaking of the place of Willamette Valley. But at the same time, it's a compliment because you're saying this is the pinnacle and y'all are really close to the pinnacle right now. And it's a fraction of the price. So definitely. I mean, we talked about it two years ago, like Walter Scott is a prime example of one. One of my guys in my group, he's like, I don't buy white burgundy anymore. I just buy Walter Scott. May not be like Coach Quartan Charlemagne, but it's pretty damn good and it's way less money. So yeah, definitely. So around pricing, as you said, a lot of people have been increasing price. Have you seen examples where wineries have done it well versus not so well? I mean, it depends. Like you're talking domestic wineries, yeah. Could be either, but yeah, obviously domestic is easier to kind of see. Domestic is easier to track. But I mean, we're talking like, let's say Willamette Valley. Let's go back to Willamette Valley. I mean, most of these producers have been kind of pricing their wines the same way for a while. And then if one gets really popular for consecutive years and they keep selling out, of course, they're going to raise their price on it. Everyone needs to make money. There's that general like, wow, should I pay this much more now than a year ago? It was 30% less two years ago. Should I pay that extra 30%? Is it still a good value? I don't know if it's inflation wise. It could just be demand wise. But for non-domestic, it's very hard to determine who's driving the cost up. It was the importer retailer, distributor, winery, probably the importer, most likely. But What do you think about like some wineries hold their price flat for a long time and then they'll take a big step change, right? Versus others might incrementally raise it five, 10 bucks, whatever, a smaller percentage every year or every other year, something like that, but it's more gradual. How does that impact the mindset of collectors buying the wines, whether it's a Big 30, 50% step change versus smaller increments. I mean, I can't speak to anyone else but myself, but that kind of alluded to that when we were talking about it. I think doing smaller increments, it's less harm to the wallet. I mean, ultimately, it could be the same exact amount of money being spent in a five-year span, but there's always sticker shock. People care more about percentages going up than the actual dollar spent ultimately in the long run. I mean, we look at it, would you rather have 5% each year or a 30% jump in the fifth year. I think most people wouldn't even notice the 5% on the year to year, but they will definitely notice like 30% after like five, six years, even though it's the same exact thing. Yeah. So there's a percentage, but as you get to some of these like really high price wines, like a lot of Napa Cabernet's $300 wines, 10% is 30 bucks. I've seen moves in Napa where people raise the price. They're in that range, $300 plus a bottle, and they raise the price $50, $75 at one go. 
Do you think that is still then a sticker shock, even though it's a smaller percentage? I still think there's some sticker shock behind it. Yeah. I think anytime someone sees a jump like that, they want to know why. They want to know why it keeps going up. I think Scarecrow was a good example for a while. They kept like increasing like $50, $70 every vintage. And everyone's like, why? Why do you keep increasing it every vintage? The reason is very simple. Everyone will keep buying it. So until people stop buying it, they're not going to stop increasing it. Same with Burgundy. They're going to keep increasing it. Back in the day, 15 years ago, bad vintages, price would go down. Great vintages, price would go up. I don't think I've seen a price drop in like eight years in Burgundy right now. Every year, there's always an excuse for why the price needs to be higher. 2021 is supposed to be not a very good vintage, but oh, the crop is less, so we're going to raise the price. Honestly, no one gave a rat's ass about the crop 15 years ago, the crop size. So if it was a bad vintage, prices went down. But now that the demand is so high, that price just keeps going up. Any reason you can find, you know, the sun shine five times harder <laughs> in the month of July. So, you know, we're going to have to raise the price 5%. When there's so many people with their hands in the piggy bank, something, one person changing it could exponentially change the price by quite a bit. And have you seen price thresholds where, to your point, people stop buying, at least people in your group? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely price thresholds. I mean, that's kind of what causes like other producers to get more expensive, right? It's the idea of, let's say, like DRC is $1,000, okay? And then you love DRC. It gets to $1,500. Like, nope, I can't afford it for $1,500. Then you go, what's the next wine that I think is like DRC? Chateau Peter. So I'm going to go buy Chateau Peter. Everyone else starts to buy Chateau Peter because like, oh yeah, that's pretty close to DRC, but it's cheaper. Started at $200. Suddenly it keeps creeping up. It's at like $1,000 now. It's not the same price as TRC, but it's at $1,000. And then you go, well, I don't want to spend $1,000 for that one. So I'm going to go down and try to find the next thing close to that one. And it, it's a never-ending cycle. So it's kind of like, for people that are buying Burgundy, it's kind of like Loire, Arnaud, Bizot. Like It's this chain where the top one's the most expensive. And then each one is just a little less. But before, they used to be all be cheaper. But everyone that wants that style keeps buying it and pushing the price up. There are certain breakpoints, like $300 a bottle, $500 a bottle, where people are like, even though it's creeped up $5 a year, or $10 a year, it's finally gotten too expensive for me. Absolutely. There's wines I stopped buying too. So it's not even like, oh, it hits $5,000. I stopped buying. No, it's like, if it's a couple hundred dollars, I don't think it's worth it. It's not worth it. So absolutely. To dig in a little bit on that, it sounds like that threshold will change based on how much you think it's worth. So is that like DRC is a thousand? So if Arnaud Show is five hundred, then it's still a relative value. But once it hits seven hundred, then you're out. Everyone does their own mental calculation, right? It's not even like, oh, Charlie, it's still not even close to secondary. Why don't you still buy it? It's just like, well, it's not worth it to me. I'm not selling it. So it's really, what is it worth to me for my own consumption? Like Ravenel is a good example. I pretty much stopped buying Premier Crew or Village Ravenel. I just don't think it's worth the money on release now. I love the wines. I just, do I really want to spend this much money on it? And I'm not sure I do, nor do I want to chase and beg retailers for it either and grovel at their feet, hoping they give me a couple bottles here and there. What is it going for these days? I think they're like over $300 a bottle now on release. Wow. Probably more than that, actually. Okay. And then what's the secondary like on those wines? I'm not sure. Probably like a little bit more. I'm not sure it's significantly more, but it's, you know, no one's ever going to price the release pricing more than secondary. Otherwise, they won't have anyone buy it. Right. Well, I'm just wondering if that point plays to your earlier point around that secondary price calculation in terms of value, right? Where your cutoff is, it starts 
maybe it's tied to the secondary value? No, for me, it's more, it's just whatever my mental roadblock is. Because like I said, I don't even know what the secondary value on current release revenue is. I haven't even bothered because I'm just like, in my head, nah, I'm good. I don't need to pay $320 for 2020 revenue, Vion or whatever. I don't care if the secondary is $400. doesn't make sense to me. So your group is buying, you mentioned retailers, buying hard-to-get wines, the allocations you mentioned. Where does your group normally buy wine? I think everyone's different. I'm fortunate to have some pretty good relationships with some retailers that will offer me stuff at a good price. Some people have to pay secondary pricing, buy from brokers and stuff, buy from auction. I've kind of stopped dipping my toes into the secondary market for purchasing just because pricing now is so astronomical. So it's kind of resulted in me just buying less wine, which is good, good for my wallet. And I've ran out of space anyways. And for domestic, are most people buying direct from the producer or also through their retailers? I think domestic, pretty much everyone tries to support the wineries direct as much as they can, right? As long as it makes sense. Have you seen a lot of selection or availability issues over the last few years with the pandemic and all the supply chain issues? I don't know how much the supply chain issues are an issue anymore. I don't think they are. I'm not speaking from a place of expertise, but I would say there's definitely a reduction in quantity available, but that's mostly because more people want the same things that I want. So it makes it harder for me to get what I want now. And then so from that collector standpoint, do some of the like online only retailers like a wine.com or flash sale sites like Last Bottle, do they play any role in what you're buying or are they so allocated that they would never show up in those places? Wine.com gets some pretty good allocations of high-end wine. Just people don't know. But those other ones, not necessarily, no. Yeah, these are like the stuff I'm trying to buy. Distributors have like, bans on showing up on wine searcher or something so i just get an email or message saying hey you know we got these in yes or no right so then on the domestic side when people are buying direct to consumer something that very interested in and have done a lot of work on but and i think your role looking at what's happening in wine berserkers have an interesting perspective what do people think about the whole mailing list or allocation system these days how's that changed over the last few years Based on my reading on like Wine Berserkers, which is, I think, a good data point, is that people don't love the idea of quarterly mailing lists where they're forced to buy, you know, a mixed case of wine every quarter. Some producers, they enjoy it. But I think, you know, a typical allocation one might be a little bit better. Quarterly mailing, if they're forced to buy something, that's basically a wine club, effectively. Exactly, yeah. So they prefer not to have a wine club because they prefer the optionality of an offering system? I think so, yeah. At least that's what I get. Or at least they just don't want so much wine every X period. Most people are okay with twice a year, but probably would prefer once a year. I know some producers, like domestic producers I buy from, Sometimes it's too many emails and I can't parse through everything that they're offering me. So I just don't even bother. I'm just too lazy. I want to buy their wines. It's just like, it's too much. I don't know what the difference is. If you're making like 19 different SKUs, it's hard for me to parse through it all. Right. It's like you love the producer, but there's every single flavor of, this is usually Pinot producers, Pinot or Chardonnay. Cab, you usually have maybe a couple single vineyards, but it's mostly cab, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's not part of the, because I guess to play that out a little bit, 
Pinot producers are trying to be like Burgundy producers and express that terroir and show the intricacies of all these individual sites and places. Is it still too complicated or how do we make it less complicated? How would they make it interesting for you to buy like that wide swath of wines? I feel like in Burgundy, there's kind of a, a sense of vineyard hierarchy. I'm not sure there's that same thing just yet in domestic wines. I think some there are, but I think generally there's less of an understanding of hierarchy because I think everyone farms a little differently too. So one person's best wine is probably not another person's best wine. So the lack of hierarchy makes it harder to understand what the difference is between all the vineyard sites and whether or not you should be buying them? Yeah, pretty much. Got it. And then just to close out sort of on wine buying, people in your group think about wine investing at all. So there's a lot of these new platforms that we've interviewed some like Cult Wines and VinoVest and Folio, things like that. Do people who collect wine also think about investing in wines with something like that? I have not talked to a single person in any of my collective groups that would be interested in wine investment groups. The straightforward answer. I mean, I'm sure there are people that are into it because there's always a person for every investment. But I'm not sure ours is the group for it. Interesting. So that could be playing more to people who are less serious about wine, actually. Looking at it more as an investment. You said it, not me. <laughs> So then Wine Berserkers, you know, you're a moderator there. How have you seen it evolve over the last few years? Especially, I think there was a recent site upgrade, so it looks completely different now. How has that changed how it works? Yeah, so we did a big site upgrade, I think August of 2022. I was kind of really driving this particular platform of discourse. There was a lot of confusion by users that did not understand that Discourse is not Discord. So they kept thinking that they had to go on Discord and they don't want to be on Discord. I'm like, no, it's still a web form. It's just it looks different. It took some time to get used to. I know Todd French fielded a lot of complaints. I fielded some complaints. But I think people are really into it now. You know, they've gotten back into it. Berserker Day just finished. This is our biggest Berserker Day ever. We weren't sure how it was going to be with the new website. And we were hoping that it would be at least close, but it was even better than 2022. And we're kind of in a down economy opposed to January of 2022. So, you know, that was really cool to see. Around Berserker Day, it's now like, and this is for people who don't know, like an annual day, although I think it's multi-days now, where wineries and other providers can offer special deals to the Berserker community. How has it changed over time? Besides, I think it's multiple day now, right? It's basically two days. So there's like a preview day for people that are Grand Cru subscribers for Berserker Day. So they'll pay like a annual fee. I think it's like $35, very minimal. It just helps us with server costs. And they get out early day access to Berserker businesses. So there's like a specific group of retailers, wineries, food purveyors that pay an additional fee to be a Berserker business. And they are able to make their offerings out a day before. And then the Grand Crew members can then access it that day before. And then there's the actual Berserker Day. And then that's when all of the retailers, wineries, producers, purveyors list everything. If you're talking to a winery, how would you advise them on how to best navigate Berserker Day? I would say that they need to work on wine berserkers before Berserker Day, give themselves a familiarity to the board, give the users a familiarity to them that they're just not shilling their product on this day and then disappear. 
I think one of our most successful wineries this year was Goodfellow Winery in Willamette Valley. Marcus Goodfellow is a very, very active user on the board. Super knowledgeable dude. Talks about all subjects, not just Oregon, Pinot. Doesn't feel like a shill. Like no one will ever accuse Marcus of being a shill. And he participates in the board. And because of that, he's been very well rewarded by the users of the board on Berserker Day. And then you'll see people that don't participate at all and they'll post something and curious why it's not selling. It's because no one cares. There's 150 plus listings on Berserker Day. How do you as a user parse through all 150 to know like this random winery is something you should try? And I guess that's the back half of that question is how do consumers or users of the board figure out what they should buy or how to best use Berserker Day? To kind of go back to the producer end, I think it's important that they, on Berserker Day itself, they have a good offering. And the offering not only is good, it's descriptive and it catches people's attention. There is like a potato chip brand that offered for the first time. They're called Dick's Potato Chips. And their uh, slogan was, eat a bag of dicks. And they're (laughs) decent potato chips, but they sold a lot because their slogan was funny. It was catchy. It's clear that they put a lot of effort into this post and they wanted to have fun with it. It becomes clear to users, especially when a producer or a business is engaged. And you'll see the post count grow. It's not a coincidence that the people with the highest post counts in the thread, the sale thread, are the ones that are selling the most because they're engaging with people. They're talking with people, letting them know, hey, you know, this is a real person behind this. It's not just like a salesperson that's just parroting something for the day and then bouncing. It's someone that, you know, is generally interested about their product and wants the community to learn from it. So just to think forward a little bit, what are your thoughts on what some of the next trends around wine collecting might be for the next year or two? I feel like that right now we're kind of in like, not a slump, we're kind of at a standstill where wines are kind of in the same place. Natural wines have had their phase. The expensive natural wines are still the expensive natural wines. Expensive Burgundy are still the expensive Burgundy. I can't project how something's going to happen, but I think we're seeing a lot more promotion of connections to wineries, like the familial connections, like sons, daughters that are branching off from their parents. Before, we never really hear about it. But now with the access to the internet, with a lot of different importers, these like small micro lots that the kids are making, that they learn from their parents are getting more popular. And also just in general, I think small production wineries, domestically and internationally, are getting more and more traction Thanks to the internet. Yeah, as we wrap up, we always like to ask something. You probably have a good set of things to choose from here, but what was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year and who did you drink it with? I would say my favorite wine that I drank in 2022 was a 1976 Armand Rousseau Chambertin. It's my friend Steve, Philip, and Victor were at uh, Hayato in downtown Los Angeles, and it was just an incredible wine. I know Victor still talks about it as being like a life-changing kind of wine for him. It's seared in my brain uh, as one of the best wines I had last year. And it was a great company too. So that also makes wine enjoyment a lot more fun. Absolutely. Wow. That sounds like a true epiphany wine. Well, thanks for your time and insights. And uh, it's always good to have you back on our show. Anytime, Peter. Thank you so much. Hopefully Robert can join us next time. Absolutely. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, 
and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.